This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Alison Lee, who's the first author of a recent article entitled Prenatal Household Air Pollution is Associated with Impaired Infant Lung Function, Sex-Specific Effects. Dr. Lee is an assistant professor at the ICANN School of Medicine in Mount, si- at Mount Sinai, New York. Also joining us is Dr. John Barnes, who wrote uh, an accompanying editorial. Uh, Dr. Barnes is professor of medicine at the University of California in San Francisco and professor of environmental health sciences at the University of California, Berkeley. Thank you both for joining us today. John, if I could start with you. Uh, why are studies about the health effects of uh, household pollution so important? Well, approximately 3 billion people, or about 40% of the world's population, still cooks using open fires or simple stoves uh, fueled by kerosene biomass, which is wood, animal dung, or crop waste, or coal. And uh, there's incomplete combustion in these open fires or simple stoves uh, that generate uh, household air pollution, and the Global Burden of Disease Project attributes uh, many adverse uh, health outcomes to household air pollution, uh, especially uh, among women. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and lung cancer in the developing world uh, where most women don't smoke tobacco, uh, household air pollution may be the major cause of these conditions. And uh, the World Health Organization has estimated that household air pollution causes close to 3 million deaths per year, including uh, many deaths among young children due to pneumonia, and that's uh, pertinent to our discussion today. So to follow up on that, John, uh, what are the limitations of the current literature on the health effects of household pollution? Well, as uh, one might expect in these low-resource countries, it's hard to both measure exposures to household air pollution and then objectively measure outcomes such as lung function. Um, I've been involved with studies in Guatemala and Malawi, and I know know from firsthand experience how hard it is. And so uh, much of the existing literature has been criticized for not having good exposure data so that uh, studies are prone to exposure misclassification. It's just usually self-report of cooking with solid fuels, for example. And then the outcomes have often been uh, just survey uh, data question uh, about respiratory symptoms or respiratory conditions. And Dr. Lee's paper, uh, I think, covered both of these limitations uh, nicely. There there was uh, excellent exposure assessment uh, in terms of the what the infants were uh, experiencing over the course of uh, their mother's pregnancy. Uh, And there was uh, excellent uh, objective monitoring of infant lung function. So, Alison, uh, can you tell us about the objectives of your study? 
Sure. So as Dr. Bonds discussed, uh, nearly 40 percent of the world's population uses or burns biomass fuels daily, which results in extremely high levels of household air pollution exposure. While it's definitely true that all household members are exposed, um, women are typically the primary cooks, and they continue to cook while pregnant. And so, you know, our group is really focused on this idea that exposure to household air pollution uh, truly begins in utero. Prior literature suggests that prenatal environmental exposures, including air pollution, may alter fetal development and predispose a developing fetus to future disease. So, for example, based on work by our group and others, we know that children born to mothers with higher prenatal ambient air pollution exposures have increased risk for childhood wheeze, asthma, and impaired lung function. However, the effects of prenatal household air pollution exposure on infant lung function and lung development have not previously been studied. Um, also, as Dr. Baum's just described, we know that pneumonia is a leading killer in children under the age of five, and that household air pollution is a major risk factor responsible for nearly half of all deaths due to pneumonia in these children. And so, therefore, the objectives of this study uh, were to determine associations between prenatal household air pollution exposure and infant lung function, and further, um, determine whether these changes in lung function may increase the risk for pneumonia in the first year of life. Now, your patients were recruited from the Ghana Randomized Air Pollution and Health Study. Uh, can you briefly describe the study to us? Sure. So the Ghana Randomized Air Pollution and Health Study, or GRAFTS, is a collaboration between researchers at multiple institutions here in the United States and also the Kintampo Health Research Center in Kintampo, Ghana. So briefly, GRAFTS is a cluster randomized cook stove intervention study wherein communities were randomized to one of two cook stove intervention arms, the first being a BioLite stove, which is an improved combustion efficiency biomass stove, and the second being an LPG stove or a gas stove, uh, similar to what you or I may cook on at home, and our clean fuel arm um, or control, which in this case was the traditional uh, three-stone fire cook stove. To be eligible for the study, a woman had to be a non-smoker, the primary household cook, and pregnant with a singleton fetus at gestational age less than 24 weeks, as confirmed by study ultrasound. And the primary objectives of GRAFTS were to determine the effect of a cook stove intervention on birth weight and acute lower respiratory infection in the first year of life, as determined by active weekly field worker surveillance with subsequent physician evaluation following the WHO integrated management of childhood illness criteria. In addition to the intention to treat analyses, planned secondary investigations included exposure response analyses, and therefore personal 72-hour um, carbon monoxide exposures were assessed at seven time points, four done prenatally and three postnatally. And I think to sort of take a step back and put this in the context of other cook stove randomized controlled trials looking at early life exposures. Um, notably, the two largest published to date were Guatemala, the RESPIRE trial, and in Malawi, the CAPS, actually both of which Dr. Baums um, played a key role. Uh, GRAFT is really the first large RCT with a clean fuel arm that is exclusively recruiting or recruited pregnant women um, and performed extensive pre and postnatal exposure monitoring and active pneumonia surveillance. And then specific to this paper, um, the, the design and subject selection? So we took advantage of the prospective longitudinal nature of the GRAFTS cohort 
um, with its well-characterized population exposure variables uh, to examine associations between prenatal household air pollution exposure, infant lung function, and pneumonia in the first year of life. So in addition to the variables I've already mentioned, we performed infant lung function testing in 30-day-old healthy infants without acute respiratory symptoms. Notably, our study recruitment occurred over one year, while the GRAFS recruitment occurred over three years. And therefore, this study consists of 404 mother-infant dyads, um, while the entire GRAFS cohort was 1,400 mother-infant dyads. And how did you assess prenatal carbon monoxide exposure? So at four different time points from enrollment to childbirth, pregnant mothers underwent 72-hour personal carbon monoxide monitoring sessions using the LASCAR CO data logger. Participants wore these monitors in their breathing zone, except while they were asleep or bathing, at which time they were asked to keep the monitors close by, but off the floor. The monitors recorded carbon monoxide levels in parts per million every 10 seconds. We also had a number of quality control checks in place, such as exposing the monitors to certified span gas every six weeks and visual inspection of all data points. For these analyses, we used the first 48 hours of each 72-hour deployment to avoid cases where, for example, field pickup schedules could have missed a cooking event on the last day. And we then averaged the prenatal exposure to determine average prenatal carbon monoxide exposure of each infant. Actually, in figure one of the manuscript, we provide a representative tracing of the participant's 72-hour carbon monoxide assessment, which really demonstrates um, the spikiness, if you will, of the exposures. So for the participant represented here, these exposures range from incredibly high during the one to two hour cooking time. So in one instance, the exposure rises as high as 95 parts per million to zero for the majority of the time between cooking. And so to put this in context, the EPA standard suggests that a one hour average of 35 parts per million should not be exceeded more than once a year. Um, for this manuscript, what we did is we then took the average of these exposures over the entire assessment period. And so as the carbon monoxide exposure are essentially zero outside of cooking, the average carbon monoxide is substantially lower, despite the fact that there are these spikinesses of the data points. Now, for, for those of us more familiar with adult pulmonary function testing, can you describe how you assess pulmonary function in, in just a 30-day-old child uh, and how these measures may relate to spirometry in older children? Right, so our study really draws on prior observations that lung function trajectory, um, which is a major risk factor for chronic disease in adulthood, including but not limited to lung disease, may be set very early in life. So indeed, work by Stern AL suggests that lung function measured within the first few weeks of life tracks with future spirometric measures. And in that study, they demonstrated that children uh, who had the lowest quartile of lung function measurable at one to two months of age had persistently reduced spirometric measures. And this was FV1, FVC, FV1 over FVC, and even mid-expiratory flows after over 22 years of follow-up. And so really building off of that, that work, we determined to measure infant lung function in a subset of our GRAFS cohort. There are a number of different methods that you can use to assess infant lung function. However, some are more invasive and some require sedation. Given that we were operating in a resource-poor rural setting, our first priority was to make sure that our assessments were safe for the infants. 
Therefore, we chose to perform tidal breathing analyses and a single occlusion test. Briefly, the test is performed with the infant unsedated and supine, breathing through a face mask. 50 reproducible flow volume loops are recorded, and from these, respiratory rate, tidal volume, minute ventilation, and the ratio of the time to peak tidal expiratory flow to expiratory time are determined. I think for most pulmonologists, respiratory rate, tidal volume, and minute ventilation are easy to understand. The ratio of the time to peak tidal expiratory flow to expiratory time may not be as intuitive, but it is an expiratory flow parameter that has been linked to future respiratory symptoms, including early life wheeze and spirometric measures such as FEV1. The single occlusion test provides a brief pause at the end of inspiration, which then produces a passive exhalation whereby compliance can be measured. It is important to note that this is whole chest compliance and not just lung compliance, although at one month of age, the chest wall contributes very little. So now, uh, what were the primary findings of your study? So our primary finding was that all children, but especially girls, born to mothers with increased prenatal household air pollution exposures were at increased risk for impaired lung function, specifically increased respiratory rate and minute ventilation, and reduced peak tidal expiratory flow to expiratory time even after adjustment for important confounders and covariates. We additionally performed a number of sensitivity analyses that adjusted for birth weight and gestational age at delivery, weight gain in the first month of life, secondhand tobacco smoke exposure, and also additional sources of carbon monoxide exposure. And these analyses did not substantially change the findings. And so we think these findings are important for three reasons. So the first, as I mentioned before, we know that reduced infant lung function, um, and specifically peak tidal expiratory flow to expiratory time has been linked to future respiratory symptoms and spirometry. Therefore, these findings suggest that the effects of household air pollution beginning in utero, uh, begin in utero and may alter lung development and program future disease risk. Second, what we measure in our studies is exposure, but what we're most interested in is dose, which is proportional to minute ventilation. And therefore, our finding that increased prenatal household air pollution exposure is associated with increased respiratory rate and minute ventilation in infancy suggests that these changes in lung function could alter the child's dose of air pollution moving forward. So in other words, a child with higher prenatal household air pollution exposure may be more vulnerable to the effects of postnatal air pollution exposure as compared to a child with lower prenatal household air pollution exposures. And this may be one pathway by which prenatal household air pollution exposure programs future disease risk. And finally, we see that girls were most vulnerable to the effects of prenatal household air pollution exposure. And this finding is especially important given that females are the predominant cooks in most lower and middle income countries, and thus are differentially exposed across the life course. And these results suggest that girls may start life at a disadvantage. So just following up on that, what's the, what are the explanations for your finding that girls appeared more vulnerable uh, to prenatal carbon monoxide exposure? The prior literature suggests that there are sex-specific differences in lung maturation and developmental trajectories, and even in the developmental transcriptome. Um, there are a number of epidemiologic studies that also support a sex differential response to environmental toxicants. And so while the exact mechanisms are not clear, um, our group is currently using biobank samples to try and understand the molecular underpinnings of these findings. So just one other question about your study. Um, does prenatal exposure to household uh, air pollution increase the risk of infant lower respiratory tract infections? 
We believe so, yes, and are examining the exposure response relationship between prenatal and postnatal household air pollution exposure and pneumonia in the larger GRAPS cohort. It's important to note that there are likely multiple pathways by which prenatal household air pollution exposure may increase risk for future pneumonia. And in this nested study, we're looking at just one of those pathways, infant lung function. And so to do this, we used models to investigate associations between infant lung function at 30 days of life in healthy children and physician-diagnosed pneumonia and severe pneumonia over the first year of life. And to give you a sense of the burden of pneumonia in this population, of the 384 infants with acceptable infant lung function tests, 52 or 15% had one episode of pneumonia, 14 or 4% had two episodes, and 3 or 1% had three episodes of physician-assessed pneumonia. So in other words, at least 20% of infants in this study had at least one episode of physician-diagnosed pneumonia in the first year of life. And of these, 18 episodes met the WHO criteria for severe pneumonia. And these criteria include oxygen saturation less than 90%, strider, chest indrawing, or a danger sign, which could be lethargy, um, loss of consciousness, or inability to eat. And so our data suggests that impaired infant lung function measured at 30 days of life in asymptomatic healthy children was associated with increased risk for both physician-diagnosed pneumonia and severe pneumonia over the first year of life. So putting it all together, our study suggests that prenatal household air pollution may alter lung development, resulting in impaired lung function, which in turn may increase the risk for pneumonia and severe pneumonia in early childhood. Thank you. Now, John, in, in your earlier comments, you talked about some of the strengths of um, Dr. Lee's study. Are there other strengths and any limitations of, uh, of these findings? Yes, in addition to the, um, I think, elegant measurement of exposure to carbon monoxide, a good uh, marker of biomass uh, smoke exposure, and the uh, careful measurement of infant lung function, the actual study design uh, is really uh, excellent. It was it's basically a birth cohort that's followed prospectively, uh, and uh, that's really kind of at the top of the study design hierarchy. Uh, and the limitations are understandable. Uh, is a relatively small sample size uh, because this is a lot of work is required to do a study like this. Um, there are other potential uh, factors that could influence uh, lung function that uh, potentially could be confounding, such as dietary data. Malnutrition may be a problem in this population. Uh, and, you know, the diagnosis of pneumonia while following uh, the WHO Integrated Management of Child uh, Illness Guidelines uh, and with weekly active surveillance, there wasn't confirmation with chest imaging which you might have liked to have had. But I think the limitations are relatively minor compared to the strengths of the study. Um, and the implications of the findings that uh, Dr. Lee just uh, summarized uh, are potentially profound. So with that, moving forward, what can we do to prevent the harmful effects of prenatal and infant exposure to household air pollution? Well, it's tricky in... Uh, low-resource settings such as uh, uh, the ones that 
were characteristic of the graph study. Uh, I already mentioned malnutrition being an issue, but in terms of uh, reducing exposure to household air pollution, uh, cleaner burning stoves, not biomass stoves, which have been studied in Malawi and Guatemala, uh, as well as in graphs, but uh, liquid petroleum gas, LPG stoves. Um, the graphs study is commendable for having an LPG arm, but there's a larger multi-country country trial of LPG stoves that uh, the NIH uh, is sponsoring in conjunction with the Gates Foundation, but the results of the, of that study won't be available for uh, several years. And in the meantime, there are many infants being exposed in utero and then uh, postnatally to household air pollution. And uh, so we don't have necessarily an answer in terms of cleaning, cleaner burning stoves because in Malawi, for example, where I've done a lot of work, uh, there's not a distribution system for LPG. Uh, Ghana, at least, is, is working on that. Uh, so there are other sources of, of exposures that can be dealt with in these low-resource countries. Uh, lighting is an issue. But we fortunately have relatively low-cost uh, solar lights that uh, can be used so that uh, households don't have to burn kerosene or solid fuel for lighting at night. Um, rubbish is often burned uh, near the home and can generate a lot of smoke, and that is something that can be done uh, away from uh, the home a bit so young children aren't exposed. But the bigger issue is that poverty is a major driver of respiratory illness in both kids and adults in these countries. We need to have these countries have economic development to climb out of poverty. The problem with that is that that often generates other types of um, air pollution. Uh, the kind of vehicles, motor vehicles that are in these countries are less well controlled in terms of air pollution uh, emissions than uh, in in high income countries, and uh, often power is generated in ways that are also dirty. So it's tricky trying to both uh, enhance economic development, which has pollution exposures associated with it, and uh, try to reduce exposures from household air pollution from uh, cooking or lighting or heating with solid fuels. So. I would like our listeners to be aware of that tension between the good aspects on, uh, in terms of health of economic development, but there's also uh, pollution problems related to that. Thank you very much. Um, Alison, before we close, do you have any final points you'd like to emphasize about your findings? I think I would very much agree with everything that Dr. Baum just said. And, you know, obviously there are many public health efforts underway um, trying to reduce air pollution exposures and a number, you know, in developing countries that are really focused on reducing childhood mortality. And as we discussed, you know, a leading cause of under five mortality is pneumonia, a burden disproportionately borne in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think that the results from this study in particular speak to the urgent need for reductions in air pollution exposures, all air pollution exposures, as Dr. Baum's mentioned. Um, not limited to just cook, to, cook stove exposures, 
but making sure that there is a focus on the prenatal period. Because, you know, these data really add to the substantial body of literature that supports the importance of early life environmental exposures on lung development and the programming of future disease risk. So I'd like to thank Dr. Lee and Dr. Barnes for doing this. Um, to the listener, to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or, or Google Play. You can also subscribe uh, to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Uh, thanks again for listening and have a great day. 